Welcome to the Veterans Breakfast Club, where veterans tell their stories. The mission of the Veterans Breakfast Club is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories, and we accomplish this through public storytelling programs where veterans of all eras can share their memories in their own words. Enjoy the program. Thank you, everyone, for coming out to our first breakfast of the year. It's been three months since we've had a breakfast. <laughs> Jerry hasn't eaten since, he said. <laughs> hasn't had bra- breakfast since. Three months, because we take off January and February and early March because of the weather. It turns out the weather was better. And uh, it's, so, it, it's so funny, this has happened every year. It's about the middle of February. I'm stomping around the house in a bad mood. And my wife says, you need a breakfast. <laughs> it's absolutely true. I need to... I need to start doing this again, and boy, was I excited to come out and, and uh, start up the new year uh, with our breakfast. And we always like to begin with the national anthem, and here we have Vietnam veteran, Air Force veteran, Lee Corfield leading us. Thank you. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light? What so proudly we hail at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watch were so gallantly streaming and the rockets red glare. The bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave out of the land of the free and the home of the brave. Thank you very much, Lee. You could clap for Lee. <clears throat> well, thanks again for coming out today. And for those of you who haven't been here before, uh, we're the Veterans Breakfast Club. My name is Todd, and I'm the director. And I was with the Veterans Breakfast Club at the beginning in, in the fall of 2008 when we got 30 World War II veterans together at the Crown Plaza on Fort Couch Road in Bethel Park to share their stories. It was amazing. When I heard those stories, I I was stunned by a couple things. First of all, I was stunned by how well these stories were told. I mean, they were like actors reading from a professionally written script, you know, but it it wasn't a a movie. It was uh, real. And I, I think I was just stunned at the diversity of the stories, the wide variety and uh, how well people shared their stories. So we started with 30 World War II vets in the South Hills, and last year we did 40 events. You know, 3,500 different people came, and, uh, and, and, you know, hundreds of stories were told. And we've been doing it ever since, and we have Brian Cimini here, who is recording with his cousin Alina, also recording events, and uh, we're very grateful. So be careful what you say, Larry. It's being recorded, okay? And uh, we're a nonprofit. We also interview veterans with our Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh Oral History Project. 
and uh, we have oh, seven or eight hundred stories recorded, and um, they are edited and put on our website, and we're also transferring them once a quarter to the Heinz History Center, uh, and they are processing them and uh, indexing, eventually transcribing, using them in exhibits and programming. We're very excited about that. We, we're also doing something special this year, and you'll hear more about it later on. We've launched a post-9-11 veteran storytelling project. It turns out that you know over these 40 breakfasts that we had last year, very few younger vets come to our events because it turns out, and I did my research, they have jobs. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, do I feel sorry for them. And so we realized we needed a separate track of programming for the young vets, and we've hired a young vet to uh, direct that program. His name is Nick Grimes. I hope uh, he starts on April 1st, and so I hope that you'll be meeting him soon. He's a, a 30-year-old Army veteran, 27 months in Afghanistan, fascinating person, and I think just the right person to kind of reach out, reach the young vets, pull them together, and start coaxing them into sharing their story. So you'll be hearing more about that as we go on. And as as you know, we, we are really grateful to sponsors who sponsor the breakfast. And we have two sponsors today. Uh, one is the first time sponsoring. This is John Licious. John, would you mind coming up and talking about uh, clear captions? Thank you, John. Most people tell me I don't need this anyway. But um, and well, and the other thing is, I make my living talking to people that are hard of hearing, that have hearing loss. So typically people tell me that they can hear me anyway. But I am here uh, today, and I thank you for the opportunity to be here uh, among all of you folks and to talk to you. And I certainly thank you for your service to our country and everything. Um, I represent the Federal Caption Telephone Service. And I know we've spoken to a number of folks already, but there are some folks here that actually have captioned telephones in their home. The Federal Caption Telephone Service is a federally managed program, and it provides captioned telephone service to individuals that have difficulty hearing on the phone. They have difficulty communicating on the phone due to their, any, any, to, due to their hearing loss. Um, a great qualifier for anybody that you may know or that you speak to or maybe even yourself or any wives here probably pointing at their husband. If you ask the question, if you're on the phone with somebody and they ask you, they say, what? Could you repeat that? Huh? Could you speak a little bit louder? I'm having trouble hearing you. That is a qualified person for the phone, okay? The caption telephone service is provided at no cost. It is free. It's provided through, it's paid for through what's called the Telecommunication Relay Service Fund. Now, this is the phone that's provided. It's a regular phone. It's a landline phone. It doesn't need to be plugged into a phone line. So Verizon, Comcast, even internet IP service, anything like internet phone service, whatever. But what it does, you see, there's a, it looks like a phone with an iPad on it. And what this screen does, there's a seven inch screen here that provides a text or a caption of what the other person is saying while you're on the phone with them. So you listen, you answer the phone when it rings, you dial it when you wanna make a call, you hear the best you can, you speak as normal, and then you can follow along with the conversation by reading the caption. If anybody uses the captions on their television, it's kind of the same thing, 
Okay? So, why is it free? Everybody's skeptical it's free. Well, the service is free because it was actually created through the Americans with Disabilities Act. Title IV of the Americans with Disabilities Act covers telecommunication assistance for any American resident that has speech or hearing problems and regular hearing loss due to age, age, trauma, whatever, uh, is covered under that. The other thing is, so you're qualified for the phone if you're an American resident with a hearing loss. The other thing is, you and me and everybody here, probably not you unless you have your own phone bill, has been contributing into the fund that pays for this through your telephone bill since 1992. Go home and take a look at your phone bill. Under surcharges and other fees, there's one federal fee. It's called the Federal Universal Service Fee. And right now, as American residents, whether we have a landline phone or a cell phone or both, we're contributing about a dollar to two dollars a month into the fund that covers this phone. So, if you're an American resident with a hearing loss, you qualify for the phone. And it doesn't require professional certification. Um, you just certify to us or you identify yourself as, as a person who has trouble hearing, on the f- communicating on the phone due to your hearing. Question came up over at the table, how much hearing loss do you need to, to certify or whatever? All you need to do is identify that you need this phone to communicate at the same level that somebody who doesn't have hearing loss has. It's Americans with Disabilities language. But anyway, so there's no professional certification. We don't need a certification from your hearing aid provider, your doctor, anything like that. So I, I know you guys want to get going and I don't want to want to wrap it up, but everybody at the table, um, I left one of these. Uh, there's a description of the federal caption telephone service and there's also a card and my name and telephone number are on each of those. Um, We come to your home to set this up. This isn't something that we mail to you because um, in addition to being a captioned telephone, it's also an amplified phone. So it uh, we can we set the volume levels for you. It has a number of different ringtones. It's a phone that's designed for people that have difficulty hearing on the phone. If you have trouble hearing the phone ring, it's got five different ringtones. We can turn them up to different levels, and those are the kind of things that we do when we come to your home. Uh, I won't get into any further details with you. Uh, we have already. Um, I'm setting up installations up for the phone as early as next week um, for the folks that are here. So I already have a number of people set up for Monday and Tuesday, but um, you know we can fit you into the schedule for as early as next week. So there's not a long waiting period for this either. If you're not, if you have some questions and you want to, unfortunately, I have to leave to go to another meeting, so I won't be here much past 10:30 today. I apologize for that, but if you want to call me or anything like that, you can call me. My number is on the on both pieces of information, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Also, if you know of anybody in your family circle of friends, uh, the most difficult people that we have to reach. I spend every day of my life in a senior citizen center, senior citizen residence uh, building, which is where I'm going after this, and then things like this. The most difficult people that we have to reach are the guys that are in their homes. You know, know, they're 
They don't go to a senior citizen center. Maybe they don't come to a breakfast like this. Maybe they don't go to an expo or anything like that. They're the most difficult people that we have to reach. So if you know of anybody in your family circle of friends that you think could benefit this, from this, please pass on the information. Give them my name. They can contact me. I'll answer any questions that they have and, uh, you know, arrange to set the phone up if it's a good fit for them. So thank you very much for your time. I will be over there to answer any questions if uh, if anybody has any. Thank you so much, so much, Sean. I noticed that Congressman Keith Roth has stepped in, and I'm sure you are probably heading somewhere. You will, You can't stay the rest of the breakfast. You can stay for a little bit. Would you mind saying hi to the group? Hey, good morning, everybody. And I just noticed these on the table. Okay, how many folks are from Beaver County? Raise your hand. Okay, don't bring this to the courthouse. Okay, it's uh, that's nice. That's nice. Don't bring it. Probably not bring it to my office either. You might get into trouble in D.C. Anyway, I just want to say good morning. It's Josh. Josh is in the back uh, with my office. Uh, make sure you check in with Josh or me if you're spotting issues that you're concerned about. Lot going on. Just reach out to us. I'm I'm here to listen to the stories, Todd. Okay. So it's, uh, I, I just want to let folks know I'm here and happy Easter early and uh, look forward to chatting later on. Thank you. Thank you for coming, Congressman. We also have another sponsor, Concerned Veterans for America. Yes, Dave. Dave Barker just took a shot at politicians saying he's never heard a, a congressman spend that little time with a microphone. Um, Concerned Veterans for America is our other sponsor today. And Dan Brownlee, could you come up? Chuck Schrankel, I know, is with them. Thank you, Chuck, for uh, facilitating the sponsorship. Dan, I just met Dan today. And Dan, you are an Army veteran, correct? Yes, I am. And I just want to say thanks for having me out today. This is my first breakfast. I'm here with Chuck Schrankel and Darley Eppinger. Uh, you may know them, and, and they were so gracious enough to get this set up. So thank you very much for having us out. And uh, I was an Army veteran 2011 and 2015. And I know I, I kind of have a baby face, but if you kind of put it together, you realize I, I, I did something a little bit backwards, and I decided to join the Army when I was 32. Uh, so that was a bit interesting, and Todd had asked me to share that with you previously. You I must was, have been like the old man in basic I, you training. Know, oddly enough, there was, uh, uh, he was from the Coast Guard into the reserves, uh, a gentleman, he was 40 years old. So I wasn't even the oldest at basic training. Uh, so every time that I felt that uh, maybe it was a little bit too tough for me, I kind of just looked over to my right and realized Can I he probably is it tougher. What inspired you to join the Army at age 32? Uh, yeah, well, two things. So I started off, I was a, a social studies teacher in ninth grade. And for me, uh, ever since I was a little kid, it was always important for, for me to understand the history of our country and the leaders and, and the soldiers and the airmen and the people that sacrificed so much. Uh, so we could enjoy what we had. And, and that was always special to me. But my life took me in a different direction. And then eventually I, I got to the point where I realized, you know, this is the time or it's not going to happen. Right. Uh, so that's why I decided to join when I did. And then I'm thankful to say I'm standing up in front of you here. I made it through. Did you ever have any regrets as you were... You know, uh, well, no, the, well, the only regret I think I had was that for some reason I decided to put Alaska down on my sheet of places that I like to be stationed. <laughs> uh, so they sent me to Fairbanks, Alaska, which I know a lot of people mention that they want to go up to Alaska. It's very beautiful, but go in the summer, which is either June or July. 
outside of that, it's it's pretty brutal. But uh, it was interesting. It's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It's yeah. just uh, it's wildly different than uh, pretty much any other place you can go. How neat. Well, thank you yeah, for coming so, no, today. I, to I appreciate you allowing me the opportunity to share my story. And that ties into what I'm doing now. And, and so when I got out of the Army... I'm originally from Pittsburgh. I wanted to come back to Pittsburgh, but the issue was, what can I do? Um, And that's an issue that a lot of veterans, I know younger veterans struggle with when they get out. Uh, Fortunately, like I'd mentioned, I had been a civilian prior, uh, so that wasn't, that transition was a little easier for me. Uh, But I was fortunate enough uh, to find this opening with Concerned Veterans for America. And what drew me to Concerned Veterans for America was an opportunity to engage veterans. Uh, young veterans, older veterans, and engage them in a way that can be impactful in that we're trying to engage veterans to go out in an election year and go vote. And that's really what's important to us is you served your country, we want you to serve your country again, and that's by exercising your right to vote. Uh, We don't endorse candidates, we don't support, we don't oppose. Uh, What we do is we focus on veteran issues, uh, accountability on the healthcare side, Uh, to ensure that those that have served are receiving the proper care in the back end now that they're home. Uh, So that's really what we're trying to do is to build a community. Uh, We're a volunteer organization. We're driven by our volunteers. We're we're grassroots. Uh, We don't ask for money. We don't accept donations. Uh, But what we would love to have is your time. And, And that's what's important. And what we try to do is put together different events, whether it's social events, whether it's phone banks, maybe a happy hour, a pirates game. And we we really want to build a community Uh, So we can get to know each other and you can go out and exercise your right to vote because ultimately as a group of veterans, uh, the only way for politicians to pay attention is with our vote. Uh, So that's that's what we're really focused on and, and that's what's important to us. Uh, empowering veterans and making sure that your voice is heard. Uh, And as you'll see on on each of your tables, there's some more information about our organization. Uh, There's a a book on on the healthcare initiatives where where, uh, uh, there's legislation in the Senate right now uh, about fixing veterans' healthcare. Uh, There's some brochures and some pamphlets, just a little bit more information and a sign-up sheet. And if that sounds like something you'd like to learn a little bit more about, there's no commitment required. Just put down your information. We'll send out updates about things we're doing, events in the area. We go over to Penn Brewery. We have events up in Cranberry. Uh, We have the flexibility where if there's a group that wants to get together to do something, we'll come to you. Uh, That's that's not a problem. And and again, no commitment required. We'll just send you information. And if you'd like to come out, we'd love to have you. Thank you so much, Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Appreciate you coming out. I hope all of you got uh, one of these in the mail. If you didn't, it means we don't have your address. And if we don't have your address, we'd love for you to leave it with us. This comes out as our newsletter with our schedule. It comes out three times a year. This has our schedule through June. And you can see it's loaded with events. So uh, let me know. The other thing I want to ask you to do is I have 3,000 of them in my garage. And so I brought a few hundred today. Take a stack with you, if you wouldn't mind, you know, a stack of 50 or whatever you need, and uh, you can put them out at, uh, a li- if you go to a library or your American Legion or a retirement community or anywhere you go where you think veterans might come and be interested in, in joining us. So take a stack with you, spread them around. Thank you very much. We've got merchandise, of course. We have this lovely shirt that I'm modeling and Larry Gamrat is modeling. Um, we have uh, uh, that wonderful book about Bill Malden, the biography. Great book. Right. 
<laughs> I do know the author. Surprisingly, Surprisingly good, says Chuck Schrankel. Yes, Bill Malden was the uh, World War II cartoonist um, who uh, drew these gritty, realistic infantry combat cartoons. He was an infantryman himself. He became the youngest Pulitzer Prize winner in history, rocketed to fame and fortune after World War II. And, uh, and then, of course, his life went downhill. Um, and I wrote his biography, and that's how I got interested in veteran stories. And it is a wonderful, fascinating story. It's where I first learned about what life up front on the front lines is really like and what life in the military is really like. And uh, so you could have a signed copy for 10 bucks, John Kennedy. 10 bucks, a great bargain. Um, we also have a magazine. We've sold out of our first issue, uh, but we have our second issue is coming out on April 21st. So uh, next time we have our breakfast, I should have a stack of our new magazines. Oh, and we have a new addition to our merch lineup which is a cap. Marshall Gordon is modeling the hat. 10 bucks can be yours. We also have an event. I hope that you've gotten these invitations in the mail. If you didn't get one of these invitations, again, it's because we don't have your address. This is to our fundraising gala, which is on April 21st at the Heinz History Center. It ain't as cheap as it was last year. We upped the price and it's a uh, $60 for veterans, $75 for general admission non-veterans, $125 for VIP tickets, and every one of you is a VIP in my book. But if you want to be a VIP at this event, you got to shell out $125. Um, it's a great event. We had a wonderful event last year. We had 250 people there. We served breakfast for dinner in a creative way. Uh, boy, was it a lot of fun. So we're doing it again this year, and I'd encourage you to consider attending. Jerry Fisher, you, it's time for you to give a little commercial now. And before Jerry talks, and this is completely unrelated, I wanted to say, you know, we try and get as many stories in per program as we can. I know I talk too much, um, but sometimes I have to pull the mic away. Uh, you know, there, sometimes I have to, to cut a veteran off. Please don't be offended if at any time you're speaking, Jerry, I yank the microphone from you. <laughs> completely unrelated to Jerry's. Let, let Jerry say hi. <laughs> yeah, right. If Larry Guggins was here, he has a hook, and he puts it around my neck and yanks it. Um, the bus trips were started in 2006. A man named Jim Hiltz from down over the hill. He lives here in Moon Township. Jim's father died before he got his dad down to Washington to see the World War II Memorial. And a light came on with Jim, and he says, i got to do something about that situation. And so the idea of these free bus trips was born. Jim's uh, slogan, if you will, was, let's get them there before it's too late. And that has been what we have done, tried to do ever since. Um, Jim has left the program, but it still goes on. We do it two times a year. May 26th is our next trip. Uh, you simply call World War II Korean era veterans. I don't care if you were in country or not. To me, you're a veteran. If you fall within the parameters of the dates of service, you're, you're welcome to go. Um, it's a one-day trip. The, the, the sheet shows four pickups. We actually gather the vets at Ross Park, and then we get them down to Green Tree because the bus is on a tight schedule. So we do Beaver, Green Tree, Monroeville. We've even picked up along the turnpike. If a guy down that way um, can get to a toll booth, we'll roll the bus through, 
pick them up, and we keep going. We'll feed you twice on the bus. We have a hat for you. And since he's here today, I have to give a special thank you to our congressman. He has uh, arranged for the honor guard. That's the White House guys. Uh, you know, they're in the 3rd Army, 1st Regiment, or 1st Regiment, 3rd Army. I, I can't keep that stuff straight. But these guys come over to do a flag salute to our veterans at the World War II Memorial. <clears throat> you talk about a magnet. Excuse my back here, folks. But you talk about a magnet. When those guys are in that memorial and they're standing there like like the straightest stick you ever saw in their best uniforms, the, the crowd that's there from all over the country cannot figure out why they're there. We get our guys assembled. They come down and do that salute. The crowd is like whoosh. And they're taking pictures like crazy. And then it's all thanks to thanks to Keith. Um, the last two times, we've even had a surprise where two uh, young people uh, from the Marine Corps barracks have come over. And young lady a year ago sang the national anthem. She was in her finest dressed uniform. I, I couldn't believe it. And the young man that was with her, he had his red and whites on. And he did taps. And then last uh, fall when we were down there... Uh, two different people were there. But anyhow, it's a great, great thing for our veterans. And, and there's about 10 of us involved in this thing. We're really, really pleased to uh, be involved with that. Thank you, Jerry. That was record time. I appreciate well, it. Well, then I'll take some more. <laughs> Just an, an advance warning. We Last May, we did. Uh, we had the Tuskegee P-51 Mustang and, the, and their uh, traveling exhibit at the Beaver County Airport. The trailer is coming back in May. At the over uh, Memorial Day weekend, details to follow. Okay, thank you. I wanted to begin with Robert Hetherington. I talked to him over the phone. He said he was going to be here today, and he's not here, which is a shame. So, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, I'll uh, I'll be able to get him here uh, next time. Uh, he's a wonderful veteran with a wonderful story, and his picture here reminds me. If you're a veteran, please bring pictures of yourself to the breakfast. I make copies. Maybe some of you saw me rushing around with my little camera this morning, take, making copies of other of, of uh, photos that veterans brought in. I will go home and I will put them up in a PowerPoint and I'll show them next time. So, Tom, pictures of you in the Navy, please. Okay. And, and if you could email them to me, that's even better. That's very easy. And actually, one person who emailed me pictures at my request was Andrew Brennan. Thank you for coming out today. You're one of the young veterans who uh, has been able to come out to our breakfast every once in a while. Andrew, uh, maybe I could turn the lights down up front here so you can see these a little bit better. Andrew, you are one of a few West Point graduates in the room today. Yeah, I saw Chuck. I don't know who else is in the room. That's, Chuck uh, and Calvin. It's a grad, Calvin. We'll have, to, we'll have to chat afterward. What What inspired you to go to West Point? Sure. So um, I'm a Penn Hills guy originally. It was in my junior year of high school at Central Catholic uh, when 9-11 happened. And like a lot of kids that were in high school uh, during that era, my, my grandfather, who was a World War II guy, uh, steam fitter, if anybody's from the local 449, he came to pick me up early that day and uh, driving down Fifth Avenue, we might have been 300 meters from, from Central's parking lot. And one of the things that came out of his mouth very early was the war that's going to follow from this is going to shape your generation. And then he said, you need to be on the right side of that. Um, my, my life plan to success before that was to go to Notre Dame and become a lawyer. Uh, and I 
pretty much shifted my focus at that point to trying to get into a service academy. Um, every uh, nurse growing up uh, had done me a disservice and told me I was 20-20 vision. Uh, turns out that was not the case. So when I went for my physical, um, and I had been applying to the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy, I found out that I was like 20-25 in one eye and 20-35 in the other, so I, I didn't qualify for flight. Uh, but the Army, you know, they'll take anybody. Um, so I, uh, I ended up uh, at West Point, and uh, as you can see up there, that's the front of me in a, a UH-60 Blackhawk uh, showing off some Pittsburgh pride with the terrible towel. So I ended up flying rotary for the Army. You wanted to be a, fl- you wanted to be a pilot. I did. I wanted to be a fixed-wing guy. Fixed-wing guy. And ended up in rotary uh, through the Army because, again, my, my vision was a little bit of a holdup for, uh, for the Air Force and the Navy. I was at the Hall of Valor ceremony at Soldiers and Sailors on Sunday. I do the I do at the dinner for the honorees what we do here. I go around and get them to to you know share a story. And one of the honorees was a uh, Huey helicopter pilot from Vietnam. And in talking to him, he seemed like the most laid back guy I've ever met. And it it strikes me a few helicopter pilots I know, combat pilots, have been like that and you you seem like that you seem like a kind of a guy, a guy who's hard to get ruffled doesn't get ruffled very often yeah i would say after the after the experience of flying in afghanistan which is probably one of the most challenging flight environments for a for a rotorcraft pilot in the world and, and the vietnam guys uh, i don't know there are any vietnam era pilots in the room by chance uh oh i'm sure most of you have that are vietnam era worked with aviators i mean these guys flew at night without night vision um, I mean, what they did, you know, was high stress. And uh, even though we have a lot more advances in technology now with the way we fly, you're still landing at seven and eight thousand foot landing zones that are right on the edge of power margins for the aircraft. I mean, there were instances in the summer where we could probably only accommodate five, six passengers because we were at such high altitudes and it was very hot in the summer times. So you were you were really pushing the uh, the envelope. And I'll say that some of the scariest times that I had in Afghanistan weren't really enemy threat related. It was the environment. It was very dark at night, even with the night vision goggles. Um, so it, yeah, I mean, you definitely get some stressful instances. And then, you know, as, as most of you have seen and, you know, having served, or, you know, the veterans in the room, that are combat vets, um, you know, moving forward in life, you realize, you know, I've, I've, I've seen a lot worse. I can handle, you know, whatever's coming at you. Do you remember your first mission in Afghanistan? I mean, you arrive in Afghanistan and here it, it's all real all of a sudden after all that training. I'd say the first, we'll say, combat mission, um, because we had a couple of like local area flights just to kind of get your feet under you, or um, or wings under you, I guess you'd say. Um, I flew a night mission, and it was actually only uh, probably it was almost inside of the ten mile ring and outside of the the base that we operated out of. Uh, it was at this uh, landing zone. It was a high enemy threat landing zone, um, and we were landing into the um, the actual uh, combat outpost had a. Like a, it was inside of the combat outpost. So it was like walled in. And the entire time that my battalion was there, it was a single single aircraft landing zone because it was so tight. The battalion that we had fallen in, in on and was training with, so I, I was there, I'd, I deployed early with my battalion to kind of set the stage for my company showing up. I was one of the, it was basically me and like six other guys from my company that showed up early to do the, the transition and the handoff with the company we were taking over from. They landed double ship into this uh, landing zone with two Blackhawks and I was the the uh, trail aircraft landing into that that LZ and um, I just after we after we got in there uh, and I was on the controls for it uh, I realized I mean my my rotor disc was probably three feet from the tail rotor of the other aircraft in front of me 
I mean, it was it was tight, and uh, and I was just like, okay, well, that's done, um, thankfully. But uh, yeah, we never did that the whole rest of the time. So I mean, things like yeah, things like that after you you go through things like that, it kind of puts things in a little different perspective moving forward in life. So that's probably why you see people being very eerily calm and collected. Uh, how long were you in Afghanistan? A year, twelve months. What was it like coming home? I mean, you spend twelve months and you come home. Sure. Um, and, and Dan had mentioned earlier, you know, and, and I'm sure many of the veterans in the room from from prior uh, conflicts experienced the, a similar thing. You know, you go from being at, you know, 26 years old, being in charge of 25 guys as a platoon leader, flying a $10 million helicopter every third or fourth day and, uh, you know, being responsible and signed for $50 million worth of government equipment and assets. And you come home to, in my case, I, I went to work uh, for a Fortune 100 company doing logistics, uh, did exactly what I thought I was supposed to do, came home, went through a junior military officer recruiting firm, got placed with a good company. You know, my day to day was watching 16 guys move boxes around a, a distribution center, and uh, it just wasn't moving the needle for me. I was bored out of my mind. So I, kn- I knew that about three months into the job, but uh, I hung in there with the company for about a year and a half, and finally I decided I needed to move on and figure out what my next uh, passion in life was going to be. Because uh, between you know deciding to go serve, doing the West Point thing, and then eventually, uh, eventually you know my time in the Army, I took up a decade plus of my life. Um, so there, after that, I uh, realized I needed to move on to something else. And what are these pictures? Can you tell us what's going on? This is, uh, is this at West Point? Sure. Uh, left, that's uh, my senior year at West Point, right before a, a parade with uh, my best friend who was a, uh, infantry, he is an infantry officer still, and uh, he was a collegiate, uh, nas- or collegiate uh, runner-up boxer, All-American. Uh, and then that's me, uh, center uh, in Afghanistan with uh, much shorter hair. And then, uh, yeah, top right is top right is me actually uh, sitting in the front seat of uh, a 60 in, in Afghanistan. You are also the founder of the Global War on Terror Memorial Foundation, which is seeking to get a memorial for your generation in Washington, D.C. What inspired you to create this? The Vietnam era, guys. Uh, short answer. So, uh, Jerry, you had mentioned you're taking everybody down there and... Uh, that, that's that's awesome that you're doing that and and that was the intent behind that is largely a driver for why I decided that I needed to start working on this so I, I quit my job which is never really advisable um, after about a year and a half and I uh, I went hiking out west with a veteran nonprofit called warrior hike and the intent of that is to give veterans some time and space out in the wilderness to kind of come to term with your wartime experiences uh, most of the guys I hiked with you know were dealing with PTSD issues I was more or less just trying to find hey what's the next challenge going to be and I bumped into uh, everybody in here familiar with uh, Rolling Thunder and the Run for the Wall. So, you know, the 500,000 people show up uh, in D.C. for Memorial Day weekend for Rolling Thunder. And I didn't realize, but all those motorcyclists and people that show up there aren't just coming from the D.C. metro or even the Mid-Atlantic States region. They start in L.A. and they start a cross-country motorcycle ride on three different routes two weeks leading out for Memorial Day weekend. And they pick up motorcyclists along the way. And uh, it's real. It was really impressive. I, I bumped into that group in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it was mostly of the 250 bikes were mostly Vietnam era guys, but there were 30 or 40 global war on terror vets riding with them already. You know, I started doing the math in my head. I said, you know, at, at the the age of the Vietnam era uh, generation, and you know, this is going to happen to my generation at some point too. You know, they're going to be trading in the Harleys and Gold Wings for we'll say less exciting means of transportation here in the next 10 to 15 years, you know, maybe rascal scooters. Unless you're Warren Goss, then you keep on riding at 
90 plus. 90? No way. That's, oh, yeah. That's impressive. Still rides his motorcycle. Goldwing. That's awesome. Um, hopefully that's me someday. So I, I said, you know, the Vietnam era guys started these awesome traditions and it all focused around their memorial. And I want these traditions to continue and I want my generation to get engaged. So I said, you know, somebody needs to start thinking about getting a memorial built for my era's war, even though, you know, the war is not technically over. And there's some serious congressmen, there's some serious legislative uh, challenges in place. Right now, the way the 1986 Commemorative Works Act states, uh, it states that there has to be a 10-year standoff from the official end of hostilities of a conflict or war before Congress can really designate building a war memorial. So ultimately, we need to get that legislation amended, even though our war's gone on for 15 years now. And the intent of that legislation back in 86, I mean, legislators of the day, I'm not going to fault them. None of us had a, a concept of war that would go on 15 years. Democracies just typically don't go to war for that long. Eight years is usually a max. So, um, you know, I can't fault them for that. But the way the legislation's written, it has to be from the official end of the war. And even though we're at 15, you know, we don't qualify right now. So we need to get that legislation amended so that we can start the process of getting this memorial built. And um, so, yeah, I, I started work on that about a year and a half ago. We've seen some significant progress. Jan Scruggs, um, who got the Vietnam Wall built, is actually um, advising my group. He wrote an editorial in November that got us a lot, drew a lot of national attention to this. Um, and uh, I also have General David Petraeus, General George Casey, um, Florent Groberg, who's the Army's most recent Medal of Honor recipient, uh, and a couple other notables in the works for uh, my advisory board. So, And one thing that uh, Brian Cimini here did with Kevin Farkas is they put together, they worked with you to put together a two-minute promotional video explaining why there should be a memorial for your generation. And I, it turned out so well, I thought I would play it for the group. Absolutely. Here in the company of the generation that won the war, I proudly accept the World War II Memorial on behalf of the people of the United States of America. Today we are surrounded by monuments to some of the greatest figures in our history while we gather at this national memorial to remember and honor the Americans who fought for freedom in Korea. This monument also will serve as a symbol of hope to the Congress of the United States and to the leaders of America that we indeed have a debt to the men and women who served in Vietnam. A debt is yet to be repaid, particularly for those who need special help. On September the 11th, enemies of freedom committed an act of war against our country. Our war on terror, it will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found stopped and defeated. Post 9-11 veterans are a different breed of veteran, so I would I would imagine that a post 9-11 memorial would be different than the existing memorials. Post 9-11 veterans need our own memorial because we owe it to these young men and women that gave their lives, uh, that they're not forgotten, that we can teach future generations about what selflessness, what courage really is. The post-9-11 veterans need a memorial so that we can go there and celebrate the life that they served honoring their country to allot us the freedoms that we have today. I have three children and it's hard to, I can tell them my story, but it's hard to express the kind of the breadth and the, the, the gravity of our, what we did there. And I think a memorial represents that and that presents a legacy that will span across to my grandchildren, to my great-great-grandchildren. We need a memorial to heal. We need a memorial to honor. We need a memorial 
to remember. We need a memorial to educate future generations of Americans about our nation's longest war and the men and women who served in it. Wonderful. Thank you. Among the four things that are mentioned at the end, you know, remembering, honoring, healing, and educating, um, I think the healing aspect is the most important thing that that I really want for, for my era. And, you know, that's not going to happen unless we check these legislative boxes and, and get the, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll do the fundraising. That's not an issue. I'm going to, you know, do the, do the fundraising privately to get that done. But I want the healing that the Vietnam era experienced around their memorial for my generation. I don't want legislative red tape to hold up and put us in a situation like the World War II guys had where their memorial came so late that it, it didn't really, uh, they didn't have that opportunity. So right. that's pretty much it. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks, you very Tom. much, Andrew. Would you mind handing the phone to Ryan right next to you? Ryan, I don't know if I told you that you'd be talking today. I should have warned you. thank you you for having me. Ryan is another uh, young vet who uh, I am uh, just filled with admiration for. Army, uh, Pennsylvania National Guard. Mm -hmm. And could you describe when you joined and why? Yeah. um, So my name is Ryan All. I'll tell you real quickly what I do because it has a little bit of a bearing on my story. I work for the Department of Veterans Affairs Vet Center. We do mental health counseling for um, war zone veterans, uh, completely free and confidential. Obviously, it's, it's not even accessible by people in the VA. It's all, if you come to a vet center, it's all locked down in there. Nobody outside the vet center even knows that, that you come there. And um, I want to thank Todd for inviting me today because me as a, as a historian and as a, a guy who really supports stuff like this, uh, and now a guy who works in mental health counseling, something like this um, really just piques my interest because there is that group healing you know, like Andrew was talking about, that can come from something like this, because we are, we all have uh, the old expression, if any of you know, have, have seen the elephant, right? We've gone to war, we've, we've gone there, we've, we've come back, and we are different because of it, because we have served our country, and we have sacrificed things that people who haven't done that can't really fully understand, but we can understand each other. Um, and I think that that uh, is why groups like this are so important, and why I was so honored and excited to go work for the VA in the vet center and do what I do, uh, which is reach out to veterans and help them heal because that was a big part in my healing. So to get to, to to Todd's question, why I joined the military and when I joined the military and what that was like, it was because it was something I'd always wanted to do. Um, I grew up in a military family. Uh, my father was a 20-year Air Force guy, and uh, it was just always something that I wanted to do, right? I grew up idolizing, right, like Steve Seagal and like under siege. And I was like, this is like the best ever. This is what I want to do. Um, and I wanted to go to college. So at first I joined the, uh, the PA Army National Guard um, as an infantryman. And I was going through school. And they told us that we were going to transition into a striker brigade, which was the Army's new, new vehicle. It's new big armored vehicle. And we were excited to be a part of it. And they told us, you guys aren't going to deploy until you're completely done transitioning to the striker brigade. So that should be about two to three years. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll have time to like finish my bachelor's and still get to go do the whole army thing. And my plan was to go active duty after that. Well, they told us that one month and then the next month when I got to the, to the, to the armory, there were two lines and one line was for desert camo and the other line was for body armor. And they said, okay, get your desert camo here, get your body armor here because you're leaving. You are, we're not going to wait until you are done. So that was that was a bit of a shock. I'll, I'll, I'll say it. it was it was exciting, but um, it wasn't uh, 
it, it, you, you had a lot of anxiety. Like I'm sure a lot of people who have deployed or have been in a combat zone, you still feel that anxiety because there's things that you don't know are, are going to happen. But you were doing it with each other, so that made it survivable. And that's why, you know, when we come back here and we, we come and we talk to each other, that's what makes this transition in our lives survivable because we have each other. And I think that that is why it's important. So in short, why I joined the Army, Todd, was because uh, it was something I always wanted to do. Um, I wanted to, you know, be on the front lines of, 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 our, of my country's service. What was your first impression of Iraq when you landed? Well, I thought this was a joke, but we, like, uh, we had an advance party who went ahead of us to, to land in Iraq. Um, and we got an email and we got a notice back and they said, make sure you bring your cold weather gear because it's cold. And we thought they were joking because we were like, we're going to uh, a desert country. This is, it, it can't possibly be cold. Well, we got there and it was like the coldest winter in Iraq's history. It was raining. It was freezing. We had to like tear into some old Connex boxes to get our duffel bags that had all of our cold weather gear and wet weather gear to get that out. But we flew in on a commercial airliner to Kuwait, and then part of us drove up to, to our uh, final point into Krit, and part of us flew up there, and we flew into Biop, into Baghdad, and then from there we flew in uh, Chinooks to get to our, our final spot. So we fly up there, flying in the Chinooks, and we get there, and um, uh, where I was like, okay, well, it's not too bad. It's cold, but, you know, that, you know I haven't really seen too much other things. Well, we get to our small, our small little base, and my platoon was actually getting detached and attached to a unit with the 1st Infantry Division. Um, they had Bradleys, and we were dismounts. We, had, we were just light infantry. We, just, we had large platoons. We had about 45 guys per platoon, which was pretty big. Um, so they decided that my platoon was going to be attached to the 1st Infantry guys, and we'd act as dismounts for their Bradleys, and uh, they would give our company a platoon of Bradleys so that they would have some armored assets. So the first ID comes in to pick us up, and I'm like, okay, cool, yeah, let's, let's get in these Bradleys. Let's, let's go to our, our final spot. I've moved like eight times in like 12 days. I'm ready to like, at least, I don't care if it's a hole in the ground, at least if I know I'm staying there for a while, that would be great. So they show up, and they're in these Humvees that are not up armored. There's, there's no armor, and uh, five-ton trucks. And they're like, okay, guys, you know, hop in. And I'm like, is this really for real? I've literally, like, for the past year, I've been hearing all about IEDs and we've been trained on what to do in an IED and all of the, all the uh, small arms fire we're going to take and how the greatest threat is IEDs, IEDs, you know, improvised explosive devices, which are, you know, roadside bombs and such. And so they say, okay, get in the, get in the back of the truck, load up all your gear. And I, I get in this thing. I'm like, well, this is not exactly what I expected. And I look to my, I was on a gun team at the time and I look at my buddy and I'm like, well, what do you think about this? He, and he looks at me and says, I think I'm going to put on some of those pieces of body armor we took off because it was too heavy. <laughs> so we started strapping all that stuff on ourselves in the middle of the truck because we were in there in a completely unarmored vehicle and no idea where we were going. Uh, it ended up being not too long of a trip, but that was my first impression was, you know, that uh, in that picture there, that's us. That was, that was actually pretty late in the tour. We didn't get that vehicle until probably about nine months in. Prior to that, we were uh, in um, unarmored uh, open back Humvees where the gunner actually had to stand in the in the bed of the truck and uh, at about three months in we got armored doors to put on the side and we would sit in the benches we, we built these benches and we would sit on them in the middle and kind of all sit on them and face out so you weren't like sitting in your seat you were sitting on this bench in the middle and really facing like over the door so I don't even know why we had them because we weren't even using them we were basically exposed from the waist up looking over these doors and it was great for you know security you had guns pointing in every direction but they were terrible when things started blowing up obviously so that was uh 
Exciting time. So your daily life in Iraq, that first tour, was patrols. Mostly. Doing patrols. Yeah, we had, we had three sets um, within our platoon. We would do, we would do um, oh, there's my platoon there. We would do uh, patrol sets, which would be normally one in the morning, one in the evening, or whatever. Um, we would have a force protection set, which is where we would pull uh, guard duty, you know, tower guard or gate guard duty. Uh, and then we had a QRF, which was a quick reaction force set, which meant that you were basically, you know, on call uh, at all times for a, for a significant act um, in your area. And I asked you this the other day, and I thought I would ask you here. How did you deal with the fear? I mean, every time you go on one of these patrols... Yeah. There's a danger that you're going to hit an IED. There's going to be a roadside bombs. You saw those. You know, you had close calls. I mean, you had to know. Was that at the top of your mind, in the back of your mind? How do you deal with that fear every day for one year? Yeah, and um, I think, you know, all of, our, all of us war zone veterans can, can definitely relate to that, that fear you face when you go out um, on a patrol. Um, and I've thought a lot about this over the years. like Because you, you do run into a certain bit of, like, disillusionment at sometimes with the nature of your service and what you were doing over there and was it all worth it and why were we there and what was important and you're you're dealing with that every day and and I think this is something that in in my mind I really drew a parallel with the Vietnam veterans with because the tour was you had to be on guard at all times there was never there was never a there was never a, a safe area, a rear zone, because even when you were on base, you could be hit by mortars or snipers or whatever. And when you're and when you're rolling out, there, there's no front line. There's no forward line of the battlefield. It's, you know, we would joke around and say the best way we have to find IEDs is when they go off, because at that point in the war, you know, we they were still realizing the the enemy had gotten very good with IEDs and we hadn't quite caught up on the on the finding them and disarming them peace. You know, if we the one EOD explosive ordnance disposal asset we had, if we found an IED, I mean, we would be waiting hours and hours and hours sitting on it waiting for them to get there because they were so busy. There wasn't enough of them. Wow. But, you know, the reason we did it, right, and this is the the piece that I came to, the, the, the part of me that I could look at and I could say, like, I can justify everything that happened over there because I was doing it for my, for my brothers, because I was doing it for each other. And that's why it was important. If nothing else uh, mattered... If I can, if you can argue one side or the other about so many different things involved with the war, I could deal with the fear of going out there because I had them and to protect them was important and making sure that they got home all right was important. And that's enough of a reason for anything. I signed up to do this. I volunteered to do this. It was important to me. If nothing else mattered, and the politics or, or the war or anything, if nothing else mattered, you know, the fact that I could be out there helping my friends being, you know, in a very real way, holding our lives in each other's hands, that was enough for me. You also dealt very closely with the Iraqi people. Yeah. And here's a good picture of you with some kids. What's, yeah. what's happening in this picture? So that, that was my second tour. Um, I was actually taken off the back of our striker. You can tell the difference because now I'm not in desert camo. I'm in ACU, which is the worst camouflage pattern the military has ever come up with. I, like, what do you, what does that blend in with? It's hard to see in the picture there, but if any of you have seen like ACUs, the new army camouflage, like, what does that blend in with? I don't know, like some couches somewhere. I think that's about it. But we did, because we were an infantry unit, we worked very closely with the local population on the patrols. We would typically stop by and do uh, key leader engagements. We would talk to people, find out what they needed because our, one of our 
big missions was to get rid of the threats, but another huge part of our mission was the uh, well, SASO, the Stability and Support Operations, where we would talk to people and find out what they what they needed from us to help them, to help them build up their communities, to help them build up their schools, to you know just get garbage pickup working correctly. And um, I talked with Todd about this the other day, and in my second tour, if you would have told me in 2005 that Iraq would be Re- that relatively stable and that relatively peaceful in 2009, I would have told you you were crazy. But in 2009, um, I actually felt very confident that things were moving in the right direction. I think that all the work that we had put in to train the Iraqi army and to build up the community assets that needed to be there, I think it went pretty well, which is, to me, you know, somewhat surprising, the, the decline we've seen over there recently. That, like, that has been very like hard for me to take on a personal level because I felt, you know, we, we another joke we had among my buddies now is that we will say, well, we were winning when I left. I don't know what, <laughs> what you guys did since then, but you know, but there's a, yeah, there's a picture of, we, we stopped on patrol to get that one. That was my first tour as well. You can tell the desert camo with woodland body armor because of whatever, but there was a mural of Saddam Hussein, which we hadn't seen the entire time. And we're like, Oh, we got to get a picture of this. These, you know, I think that was the only one we ever saw. We were in Tikrit, which was Saddam's hometown. That was actually well well outside to crit. We were just we randomly ran into it, um, and it hadn't been destroyed yet. So we, I wanted to get a picture of that. It was pretty cool. But there's some of our some of our platoon there. Thank you very much, Ryan. Yeah. And I just want to uh, could you let people know again if they want to visit the vet center, how they can yeah, reach you? Absolutely. Um, so just to wrap it up real quickly, uh, I went to counseling after actually after my second tour. Um, I didn't go to counseling after my first tour, but I was very uh, heightened. I was very like overly vigilant. I was dealing with a PTSD. Okay. I'm going to ask you a little bit about this. Yeah. I know you thought I was coming to rip the mic from you and I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't. Um, you're not Jerry. What was it like to come home after, well, after each tour, I mean, what, after your first tour, what's it like to come home being in a war zone and you come home and you know, you're on the home front. How does that That was a very, very difficult transition. Um, you you go from being like I was just saying on on alert at all times to you know now you're you're you are in an in a situation where you know nothing is quite as important as what you were just doing um, and I think as Andrew said you know nothing's really moving the needle for you right your your adrenaline that was so high for so long is now you know now you 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 find you and your buddies are finding and usually dumb ways to fill that adrenaline. Um, and so that was a tough transition for me. I mean, you're dealing with families. You're dealing with... I, I lost some friends. Um, I've actually... For my first tour, I've lost more friends since I've been home than I lost over there. Um, some of them to suicide. Some of them to, um, to accidents that were probably because of uh, them making poor decisions. Dealing, having a bad transition. Drinking, drugs, fights. Those, those sorts of things. So it, it can be really tough. Um, I was... Uh, I was, you know, grounded in the fact that I was trying to finish my bachelor's degree. I think that really helped me get through. Um, I knew something was wrong with me. I felt like every time I walked out of the house, I was missing something because I didn't have on my body armor. I didn't have my Kevlar. I didn't have my weapon. I always felt like I was missing something. That, that sensation stuck with me for a very long time. And I didn't go to counseling until after my second tour because that's when I realized something was wrong. Um, because when we started getting ready for our second tour, I felt normal. I felt like that anticipation, that anxiety, that stress, that getting ready to go out and do this mission, now I felt, I felt normal all of a sudden. And that's when I realized I needed to talk to somebody because that's, that's not a normal state to be in. Feeling normal about to go to war should not be the place you should be mentally. 
So it wasn't until after my second tour um, that I actually went and spoke to someone, spoke to a mental health counselor, spoke to someone actually at the vet center, which is where I work now. So that's why I'm very excited to, to be a part of that mission because it was so transformative in my life to just be able to sit down and talk to someone. And it doesn't necessarily have to be about my war zone experience. Um, some of the groups that I've sat in on with Vietnam vets or Korean vets, um, half the time we're just talking about, about um, life at home, what's going on with them in their life right now. The individual counseling I received wasn't always about the, the traumatic events I may have had um, in Iraq. Sometimes it was just about what's going on at home. Um, and I think that that's important because these groups are successful like this because we, we can relate to one another. And I think that that's why I'm so excited to be a part of the Vet Center. We are located in Green Tree. I do have some brochures here, and I have cards here. If you'd like to speak with me about that, that would be great. Uh, otherwise, you can. I'll, I'll leave some stuff here um, so you guys can look up that information if you'd like. But I want to thank you for the time to share my story. I think this is, again, I want to reiterate uh, how great of a group this is and um, how great of a job I think you're doing. So thank you. Thank so much you time. so much, yeah. Ryan. Thank you. It's uh, good to know that our country is still producing heroes, you know? I saw Dave Barker, a Vietnam Marine, nodding as you were talking about the experience of coming home and what that's like. So it, what you went through and what Andrew went through, nothing new, right? Every Vietnam vet in here went, oh, yeah, I've heard that before because what? we all— What? Oh, we were winning when I left. <laughs> In 1966, we were winning the Vietnam War when I left. And, of course, uh, you know, most of us uh, feel the same way. And, unfortunately, we are uh, having exactly the same problems. Now, I have my two cents worth about jobs, but I won't. I think I've told everybody yeah. that before and the trauma of trying to keep a job. Well, well, part of it was uh, you lost that sense of mission. You lost the camaraderie, the sense of what you were doing was important, and that the people around you that you were working with, you weren't working toward a common goal. When you come back from combat, or when you, when you join the military, they give you a job, and then they teach you how to do it like people's lives depend on it. And then you practice that for however long you're in the military, right? Then they turn you loose. There's no off switch. And you're trying to maintain that really high job ethic and it's non-existent out here in the real world and what happens is is that you can't keep a job because your work ethic is so high you're making everybody else look like look like incompetence right i mean for the lack of a different word and so everybody's undermining you trying to slow you down and drag you down to their level nobody thinks to train themselves up to your level you can't keep a job and i think personally that that is one of the biggest problems that we have as veterans just trying to keep a damn job anyway that's my two cents worth thank you dave for your two cents hey steve hernandez how are you i'm good thanks for coming today you, you get the award for the best dressed oh. veteran <laughs> thank you i thought i'd come over here and show your picture you're an air force vet and that's you that's me. I'm going to move over here so everyone's not looking at my back. Uh, first of all, it is a pleasure to be with uh, everyone here, a room full of veterans and patriots alike. Uh, thank you. Uh, my story, I want to go one more slide. 2008, 2009, uh, one more. Oh, one more. Uh, that right there. Okay, so I'm in Japan, stationed in Tokyo, and my job at the time was to drink for my country. And occasionally I have to play golf for my country, and I was not very good at golf, but I enjoyed it. Well, you are Air Force after Air all, Air right? Force guy. That's right. That's right. So let's go back uh, the following year. This is 2009. 
I think 2010. I'm off to Afghanistan. So let's go back to that first picture with a dog. And it is the most famous lady I have ever been photographed with. Her name is Sarbi. Sarbi is an Aussie uh, military working dog, bomb dog. And uh, a couple years before this picture was taken, uh, Aussies were out, a ruse gun, I think, uh, out on patrol. They get ambushed. There's IEDs, RPGs, uh, firefight. Uh, the handler gets wounded, wounded in a bad way, and the dog's lost. So uh, immediately after, the handler goes, you know, is medevaced and subsequently goes back to Australia. Dog is lost. About a year later, Army guy, U.S. Army guy, is in a village, sees a dog, and he's like, man, there, there's something about that dog. Sit. Dog sits. Come. Dog comes. Sit. Dog sits again. So the Army guy, U.S. Army guy, again, he says, hey, tells the village folks, hey, I'm, I'm going to take the dog if it's all right. Like, yeah, it's just a wild dog. Go ahead. Uh, brings it back to base, and they do some research, and hey, that's Sarby. And so, alas, uh, Sarby just passed this last year, but I was fortunate enough to have this photo taken because one of our Aussie EOD guys was escorting the dog uh, as it was going to fly back to Australia the following day. So the most famous lady, uh, the late Sarby, I've ever been photographed with. Anyway, next slide. A few Afghanistan photos. Uh Left Afghanistan, went back to Tokyo just in time for Fukushima and the earthquake and all that stuff. And a few months after that contingency, I get a phone call from Big Air Force. And they're like, hey, we're going to send you to Pittsburgh to be the ROTC guy at Pitt for your final assignment. I said, great. Go wherever the country needs whatever the company needs me. You know, hang up the phone. And I turned to my wife, we're going to Pittsburgh. And she's like, well, what's Pittsburgh like? And I said, I think it's kind of like Detroit. But with coal mines, well, steel where, mills, where are you from originally? No, I'm a Michigan guy. So okay. Detroit is my fam- frame okay. of reference for big American cities. <laughs> so we get to Pittsburgh, and we absolutely love it. Uh, we live in Squirrel Hill. My family and I, my two kids go to Alderdice. We're going to stay in Pittsburgh forever. All uh, right. So, so uh, subsequent to my ROTC job, but we love Pittsburgh. I retire. 23 years with the company, and we stay here in Pittsburgh, take some time off, and then I get an opportunity to work at the University of Pittsburgh, again, in the Office of Veteran Services. That's where I'm at now. A guy, uh, my boss at the time, a guy by the name of Ryan All. Maybe you've heard of Ryan, <laughs> but Ryan was gracious enough to bring me on board, part of his team. And uh, so I've been there for the last seven months or so, and this is kind of the most important part of the story. Because part of my job uh, and that of my office mates is to do all the certification for the VA educational benefits. And we're talking north of 400 students, uh, student veterans at Pitt. And then there's another 100 or so uh, veteran dependents that are also uh, at Pitt receiving VA benefits. So part of it is just the account of accounting, you know, adding up the math and the tuition and fees and submitting that stuff to the VA. But the other part of our job is to help the veterans themselves. But it's really, really hard sometimes because generally we don't know. I don't know. Uh, and a lot of the, the veterans have, the young veterans have, have a tough time with the transition. An example, again, I've only been in the seat seven months 
And I have already seen multiple incidents incidents uh, of of this. And latest example was just last month. And Ryan can attest because he and the vet center helped me out. It's Monday. I get a phone call. It's from student billing at Pitt. Hey, student X, we're going to medically resign student X. What are the VA implications? What? What, What's going on with student X? He's at the hospital. Pull up the list. Call him on the cell phone. Student X, where are you? Uh, I'm I'm here at the third floor of of the hospital at the VA. Uh, I'm coming now. Go up third floor's ICU. I meet mom and dad. They're stressed out. Student is not well. Not well at all. And I didn't know. We didn't know. And I recall back when I was a kid, back in Michigan, I recall my uncle would come up from Kentucky, Fort Knox at the time, to come visit. My uncle, Alex Rendon, had been uh, a platoon sergeant with 25th Infantry uh, back in 1966-1967. He came back from Vietnam, and he had a lot of problems. A lot of problems. To put it bluntly, he would kill you in a heartbeat. And I remember he would come visit, and my mom, his sister, my mom would grab me and my brother every time and say, don't talk about Vietnam. Don't ask him about the army. Don't ask him about what he did or what he saw. Don't. We don't want to deal with it, and we don't want him to deal with it. Okay. We're little kids. Years later, still hang out with my uncle, and now, years later, he shares that stuff with me. Maybe it's some older. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he has more time and has had greater time to kind of separate, you know, from those experiences. Uh, And I love talking with him now, and he loves talking with me. But therein lies the challenge, right? Now I compare our veterans, our OEF, OIF veterans that Andy was talking about, and frequently they don't want to talk. They come to school, sign up for classes. The academic rigor is tough. They get a lot of stress. They're surrounded by 19-year-olds, and it's hard for them to adjust. And I feel that the punchline from all of this is you all are willing to talk. And that's the first step. Just the act of talking starts the relationship. And then once you have that relationship, now we're aware. Now we can start bringing some resources to bear. So I'm going to shut up for a moment, but I, I want to end on that point that what you do here now as the graduated warriors, those that have the wisdom and can impart it with the younger graduated warriors that are struggling with it right now, I just want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I especially want to thank Todd for this forum. I, I have shared with Todd that one of my ideas is to kind of start something like this for the student vets at Pitt. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But uh, thank you for what you have done for our country. And really, thank you for what you're doing now by taking the time out of your schedule to talk. Well, also, I mean, it's important to talk, but you need somebody to listen. And I think that's what a lot of people here are doing. They're, they're here to listen, like me. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. Thank you. Terrell, how are you? We've had a couple phone conversations. I'm very glad you're here today. Had a few. And this is you in the Air Force? This is actually, this right here is my cousin, Alex. Oh, okay. Hello, everyone. 
My name's Terrell Patillo. This is my brother came with me, Tyrone Patillo. Um, how it was set up was I had my uh, uncle, grandfather. Well, I I have. Okay, here we go. Do you want to start with this? this is your okay, grandfather. This, this is my this is my uncle right here. Okay, they're twins, and this is my grandfather. Little th- story to tell. Uh, my uncle was the first black. Uh, he served in World War II in the army. He was the first black foreman in Jones and Lachlan Steel from 1941 to 1983. And um, my grandfather had opened up a shoe repair shop in Plan 11 in Aliquippa in 1957. As you well know, 1957 to 69 was the civil rights movement, the start of it and, and pretty much the end of it. But at that time, my grandfather, when he opened up his shoe shop, he had 20 years experience in um, being a apprentice journeyman and master apprentice in shoe repair business, which he learned from somebody down in uh, LaGrange, Georgia, a guy by the name of Jim Smith. He took time with him because my, my, they didn't know who their father was when they were growing up. And a white guy by the name of Jim Smith in LaGrange, Georgia, taught my grandfather shoe repair trade. And so he saw what Jim Smith did in LaGrange, Georgia, and he said he wanted to have his own business. And so 20 years later, he had worked in Swickley for about six or seven years in my Uncle had been in the mill for 15 years, and he had uh, said, Tio, if you're going to work, you know, 12 hours a day for somebody, you might as well have your own business. And my uncle had a good reputation in the mill. At that time, he had became a foreman. He had uh, asked this Jewish guy, um, had asked him, and said, what's, what's wrong with you, Tio? He come to work one day. He said, well, you know, I've been telling my brother he needs to get his own business, and we need, we need some money to be able to do it. And this Jewish guy loaned the money to help my grandfather open up his shoe shop. And so grandfather got the money. He ended up paying it back within like a year and a half. And so from there, uh, the rest is history. He did like 40 years. He was 53 years old when he um, had 20 years in his own business. Well, and his, and his son was your father. Yeah, this uh, is my this, father. So this is your father who just passed away just last passed June. Away. And he never got to attend one of these. Never and got to attend. We've been, we have been talking about, we got to go, we got to go. Terrell called and said, yeah, my dad would show me the newsletter and said, we've got to go to one of these. And you just never got around to coming and it was too late. But he was an Air Force veteran also, right? Air he Force veteran. Served in Vietnam? Served in Vietnam, 68 to 72. Did he talk about that experience with you as you were growing oh, up? Oh, yeah. He talked about it, a lot of experience about it. Um, how hot it was when he was over there, some of the experiences he had with some of the guys, the, the camaraderie he experienced over there, working on planes. He was an aircraft mechanic. And did he inspire you to join the Air Force? Uh, yeah, not as, not as much. Once I got in there, it was something I wanted to do. Why but did it, you want to do it? Um, just serving. That's the culture I grew up in in my family was serving. So it just felt, felt inspired to do it. And then after I got in, then I started coming back home, seeing pictures of what he did. And right. so from the time after he got out the Air Force, he went back to the mill. Here's the story about him, though. He uh, worked over my grandfather in the shoe shop at nine years old. And so when he became uh, 18, him and my mom hooked up. They had me. He ended up going in the Air Force then. And, but when he came, he had worked in the mill after he got out of the uh, Air Force. And so he had been praying about a job. And so God spoke to him about going to the fire department. Because he said the meal wasn't going to be here. And this is 1973. And so the, the year my brother Tyrone was born. And so here um, he went to our pastor at the church and asked the pastor, say, Pastor, what do you think about me leaving the meal? And the pastor said, I don't think that would be a good idea. And he said, well, I just believe God's telling me I need to leave the meal. So here he ends up leaving. 
12 years later, I'm graduating from high school. He was the first black fireman in Aliquippa in 73. And in uh, 85, he became the first black captain and first black president of the union in Aliquippa. So that was his thing. And he was a life member at um, Vietnam Veterans, Chapter 862. But his life represented so much of character. When I was six years old, he told me, after a day after he came from the fire department, he told me, he said, Terrell, he had a bad day. You know, it was a little rough day for my mom, bad day for him. He come home, he looked at me, he said, Terrell, I'm not going to be a 50-year-old fireman. And so here it is in 1999, May 1st, he retired at 49. The next month, June 10th, he turned 50, 99. And I married my wife June 12th. So he kept his word 26 years. And one period of, at the fire department, his first seven years, he had to uh, he had to be off of work because he got in a car accident and he hurt his leg. And so they didn't want they didn't want him to come back to the fire department. I said, no, your job's not here because they said he didn't pay his um, his union dues. Something real petty. And so what ended up happening, he ended up having to go to court and sue the city of Aliquippa and the fire department. And this was like two and a half years. He was you know out of work. And so here he ended up winning the case, going to EEOC getting his job back, and when he came back, he ended up being a captain, getting promoted to captain, and he ended up um, being the president of the 802 local firefighters union. So his, his life represented so much character, I mean, for myself, you know, Air Force's integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do. He lived it. And me and my brothers, that's the one thing that we, we said at the funeral was about how you know, his life was, was, was all about service, character, integrity. So many people in Aliquippa had so much to say about his life and how he affected people, how he touched people. And when you have a legacy like that to, to live, I mean, looking at this picture, it speaks to you. I mean, even at the funeral, it was just like, you know, what he did in his life represented so much and the foundation of serving God serving family, serving the church, serving the community, and serving our country. And we're three generations of doing that. And, that, and I found out in my research, because I have uh, something I came up with, me and him worked on, it's called family franchising. And it's three generations of serving God, family, church, community, and country. And that's a servant curriculum, just like the education system have math, science, history, English, language. It's the same thing in service. And so now when you have a foundation like that, I'm the oldest grandchild. When you have a foundation like that in your family, I'm the oldest grandchild of 10 grandkids. And so we have eight college graduates and two that served in the military. And so when you have a, 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 a servant curriculum, you can actually track, just like you're doing in school, you can actually track what you're doing while you're serving. And so now with the system we designed called family franchising, we can actually show and design and help you with a model of how to build your family and grow a family tree. And it's something that we need to be able to bridge that gap between uh, people who haven't served and people who, um, who have served. And so when you bridge that gap, you can able, you're able to assess and evaluate where the gaps are. Because we have so many gaps, so we're missing so much between civ uh, civilians and, uh, and military that we got to have something that we're going to bridge the gap and bring us together to be one. Wonderfully put. And if people wanted to talk to you more about your family franchising, how could they reach you? Well, uh, you could call me on my cell phone. Uh, my number is 724-252-5147. I have a Facebook page called Family Franchise Systems, 
And my other uh, Facebook page is Trinity Kings World Services. So I'm going to get together with you and we'll be able to work on uh, more literature about it so I can be able to give out more literature. Thank you so much, Terrell. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. We have another West Pointer. Calvin, you're not as well-dressed as uh, Steve is. No, sir. Com- coming out of the orchard, and I'm, that's where I'm headed back to after <laughs> Calvin's this. Calvin's so. a, a farmer, uh, Aliquippa, right? What's your farm? McConnell's farm. McConnell's that's farm. That way we remember it easily. So. And I know uh, a farmer's life is very, very, very hard, hard work. So I'm very grateful that you took the time out to come here today. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, just uh, I guess uh, you, you've asked people why they uh, or what made them want to go into the military. Um, for me, uh, just since I was a kid, wanted to do that, had family members and looked up to people's dads, all that. I didn't actually get into West Point my first try. And if I do the math correctly, I think uh, Mr. Schrankel was actually prepping for plebe summer the year my parents were prepping for first grade. But uh, not to make fun of him, I have all the respect for him, but just to kind of show you the, the, the span in here, whatever. But uh, I didn't get into West Point my first try, and I wish I had linked up with the West Point Society or whatever kind of helped me out, but I didn't even know it existed at the time. But uh, I spent a year at uh, Penn State at the Beaver campus, kind of pass a year, brush up on academics, whatever, and then try again. And so I was there. I actually had Dr. D. Pastino as uh, my uh, first uh, history instructor there. I'd always liked history, but uh, he really blew my doors off. I just loved that class. And uh, to this day, one of my favorite uh, classes, I've gone to grad school at Pitt and uh, obviously graduated from West Point and still one of the best history classes uh, I ever had. Really, really enjoyed it. I didn't even pay him to say that. He did not. He did not. But... He uh, did write a letter of recommendation for me, so at least during the first year, if not all three or four there, uh, kind of almost wishing, man, I wish he hadn't uh, written that letter for me or been, been so successful uh, in writing it. So there is a time when you're at, at West Point and you just think, what did I get myself into? Pretty much the whole time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was not not a not a happy forty seven months. It I, really is it? Huh? No, it is not. It is not. No, I kind of bargained on one bad year and then three really cool years, and that didn't work out that way for me. So, but I was grateful to be there though. Um, and that was my mom. I was just uh, up uh, during a football weekend. Wonderful picture. And uh, yeah, you know what? Looking through the pictures, I have lots of pictures with army buddies. That's really the only pictures I have because the only time I have a camera is when you're deployed, really. Um, and I almost have no pictures with me and my parents or anybody else. Uh, so, anyways, like I said, that's kind of the one I have with my mom. Um, right there is in Kosovo. That's outside a town of uh, Upper Malashevo. We did a cordon and search there. Um, basically, as soon as I finished up my training at Fort Benning as an infantry officer, I immediately was on a plane with one of my uh, my, my roommate to Kosovo. Um, and for the Intel guys, I don't know if they put it out in the school or not, but if you want to know what's going on anywhere uh, in a third world country, just talk to the kids. Uh, they know everything. Uh, I had kids kind of repeat back patrol schedules, uh, exactly who was meeting with who and what town when, all that stuff. Uh, so that was actually pretty and spoke excellent English. They loved us. They knew everybody's name. So the kids would be sticking their heads through the firing ports. Hey, where's Sergeant Zemisco? Where's Sergeant Fitz? And I'd have to go get them for him or whatever. Um, so during Sept- or September 11th happened while I was in uh, Kosovo. So obviously everybody there knew, you know, right away. Oh, man, our life expectancy just went way down. Uh, didn't know really what was going to happen, whether we were going to go forward uh, or come home or be extended, blah, 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 all that. But got home. Um, I actually expected to be in Iraq just to chatter in, uh, in amongst the lieutenants was uh, that following uh, spring. So it had been 2002. 
Uh, that didn't happen, so instead we uh, trained up, and I moved from a rifle PL over to be a scout platoon leader for an infantry battalion and 3rd Infantry Division. Um, here I am. This is uh, a dog I got um, off, actually off my brother. This is me just in a gun truck, unarmored. Only armor is, uh, I guess, the engine block, and uh, the roof, I guess, is against airburst artillery and then what, what I was wearing or whatever. Oh. And these are your brothers. These you're- are actually, yeah, I have three brothers all in the military. Uh, the picture on the right actually is along the Diala Canal. Uh, that would have been about the 1st of May of 2003. Uh, I was on the extreme left flank with the 3rd ID during the invasion. My brother was on the extreme right flank with the Marines. He was in a 459th Engineer Company, uh, Reserve uh, Bridge Building Company. And I had tried to find him in Kuwait, but I couldn't find him. I found his, I guess, sister uh, company, the 458th. Uh, it was easy to just find boats on a bag of trucks. But I never did find him, but we got into Baghdad, and after things had settled down a little bit, saw some guys wearing a 99th ID patch. I asked them, and anyways, we linked up. Uh, I had two flags, so I gave him one. He gave me a dog, and uh, we had a bunch of souvenirs people could trade for chewing tobacco, stuff like that. Wow. Um, So that was kind of the big big deal. What's the chances, I guess, running into your brother 7,000 miles from home? Yeah, Um, yeah. The picture on the left, actually, is my... My other brother, uh, my youngest brother, Merle, he at the time was a, a platoon leader in the 101st Airborne Division, and uh, I was in uh, Kabul. That would have been in 2013. I was working in the uh, the PSYOP battalion that supported the uh, the, uh, the, the essentially the, the core there, the IJC command in Kabul. So I went down to uh, Jalalabad, linked up, and you know just kind of neat, whatever, kind of recreated uh, the same thing from 10 years earlier. My middle brother, uh, he actually was over in uh, 04 with the Strikers out of uh, Fort Lewis. Uh, didn't cross paths with him, but we kind of were on different schedules. Uh, picture right here, I was an XO of a rifle company in 3rd ID. We were actually in Korea there. We did the full legal uh, exercise, which was a practice for you know North Korean invasion. You put guys on planes, land in South Korea, uh, and then draw vehicles, weapons, everything, put them on trains, rail north, unload them. And then we did some training at the uh, KTC. And uh, once again, just kind of never could imagine all the places I, I was going to be. This is 08, went back to Iraq. Um, that's actually my old roommate from uh, 10th Mountain Division. He was a battery commander on the, uh, I think it was a Karata Peninsula. I was actually working in a PSYOP company in Baghdad, and then I would eventually go down to Fob Kel Su down a little bit south of Baghdad. So how many combat deployments did you do? Uh, not counting Kosovo, two to Iraq, and then one to Afghanistan. Um Wow. So I guess the kind of the joke here is right behind you. It was called the teardrop. It was kind of to the northeast of uh, Saddam International, or Baghdad International. And if you looked at it from a you know topo map, whatever, it looked like a teardrop. And I'd actually pretty I'd been involved in helping to clear that ground and during the invasion as a scout platoon leader. So kind of the joke between 03 and 08 was, you know, oh, watch out on the other side of the teardrop. That's, you know, special Republican guard, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And 08 got back. I was like, hey, watch out on your side of Teardrop. That's where the, the PX is and green beans and all that stuff. So you could see the difference as far as the amount that Iraq had built up. Yeah. Uh, just really in every way how things had drastically changed. I was there kind of for the second half of the surge. Um, and then the joke we said, my, my the brother that was in a picture of me in Iraq in 03, he was actually back over on a route clearance uh, unit. And uh, our joke was, well, hey, you know, whenever Iraq kind of needs something done in Iraq, you send the McConnell brothers, at least two of us. And <laughs> we kind of cleaned things up a little bit. So And this one is uh, from 2013, my uh, trip to Afghanistan. I was there for just under a year. And I'd gotten married beforehand, and then I found out uh, we're going to have a baby. Wow. So, yeah, I didn't think it would make me emotional, but um, 
But uh, in 2000, so this, yeah, is, this, this, is that, this is my daughter, Mallory, and my wife, Marilla. This is your daughter before you... No, no, no. This is coming This home? is actually coming back. Yeah, we got married, and then when I got overseas, I was there about a month, and my wife, hey, you need to call home, and you know, everything's all right, but so that was a surprise. So how long, when was your baby born... In well, that yeah, that's just, actually I came home for my my mid tour R and R, and she was born six weeks early, so that it worked out well. Went back for four more months. Oh, that must have been a hard mo- four months to go back. It, it was, but it was kind of tail end, and everything she was healthy. Uh, but in '08, I'd come home. I got a chance to have a mid tour, and I came home and picked peaches for two weeks. And I kind of figured with 2013, I scheduled it that way. I'd be home in August, and uh, she wasn't supposed to be born till you know September, or even October, really. And uh, so I figured oh, I'll pick peaches for two weeks, and uh, it just didn't didn't work out that way. So, but worked out even better. Wow! So, thank you so much, Calvin. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for all you Wonderful. do. Thanks for everyone here. Thank you so much. And I know we always like to stop at ten thirty. Um, I think we had too full of a program today, but I can't stop without introducing these two interesting people, Brandy and Vitali. Vitali? Yes. Is that how you can say it? Yeah, exactly. Okay, Fatali. And I don't know if uh, which one of you will speak, but this is, I found these pictures. Yeah. Very creepy, <laughs> I know. Um, but here is uh, Vitali and Brandy. You're Latvian. You were Latvian Army? Yes, yes, I was. And uh, you were you, uh, Army or Air Force? Air Force. You were Air, Air Force. Air Force, cool. And you met in Iraq? We did, yes. Wow, tell me, tell us about that. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm the one that's usually talking because... V is always afraid to speak because of his accent, and he can't even order water at, at the drive-thru, and they don't understand him, so... But, um, <laughs> you order water but at drive-thru? He does, he does. And he says water, and they say what? And I'm like, it's Pittsburghese, I don't know why they don't understand him. But, um, but I'm sorry, I don't want to... Um, I could tell you all kinds of stories uh, about us over in, in Iraq, um, just a quick, quick download on us is um, in 2001, I joined the military, I joined the Air Force. My brother was a Marine, and my whole life I wanted to be a Marine. Even when I was like six, I used to put like, draw the little devil dog on there, and I was like, I'm going to Marines. And when I turned old enough to enlist, my brother said, if you join the Marines, I will kill you personally. He said, you have to join the Air Force. I said, okay. I'm going to join the Air Force. So in 2001, I joined the Air Force, and um, I was probably the only person in the world that wanted to be a security forces. Um, so I told them I'm not going in unless I'm security forces, and they tried to change my mind, and I said no, and uh, so I finally got it. And I think I, I came back um, from tech school in... August 2001. I was on base for about a month and I had this old crusty chief Brazil. He was awesome. Uh, always carrying a, a coffee cup with some alcohol in it, I'm sure. Um, but he, uh, September 11th hit and I was way green. I mean, I, I didn't know what I was doing. And he saw me walking through the halls and he said, troop, you want to deploy? I'm like, yes, sir. I'll wherever, whatever you need, sir. And he said, um, well, get your, sh- get your crap because you're deploying. And I said, all right, sir. So I'm like running around. I don't know what I'm doing. He said, no, get your stuff now because you're leaving in two days. So, you know, I get nervous even talking about it, but I'm excited. I'm nervous. So uh, I I become a 60 gunner. Um, So a 60 gunner. Yes. I'm assuming that's what you're talking about. Yeah, that's my gun. Oh, I'm very creepy, aren't I? Great gun. You are. (laughs) Yes, you're a good stalker. But um so uh, we do a combat landing, an undisclosed location, and um, 
everything's good. I land one funny story. I, you know, I'm, I'm down there. I'm waiting for lay down suppressive fire just in case. And then finally they say, okay, I think we're all clear. And I threw up all over the place. So <laughs> the fear comes later after all the excitement. But um, I was deployed three times. I met my husband in Iraq in 2001, uh, in 2003. How did you meet? Um, so I was a, the, uh, in the tower, a 60 gunner. Um, I did Cougar teams also, so we went out looking for unexploded ordinances. And the Latvian battalion was over there, and they were doing um, flight line duties, uh, load masters, things like that. And security forces were so short-manned. So they asked the Latvian forces if they could give up some of their personnel to help with security, securing the, the base. And there was three of them that volunteered or three that were chosen. And V got stuck on post with me. And uh, at the time, I was not as health conscious as I am now. So I was like smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. I had this big, huge helmet that was way too big for my head. And I was the nerd. I always wore the flak vest and my Kevlar. And people were like, why are you wearing that all, all day long? I'm like, mm. Come on. You never know when it's going to happen. So, but he said he saw me and uh, actually it was probably love at first sight for him, not for me. He had to feed me. <laughs> he would come to my tent and bring me food from the like strawberries and food from the, um, and he found that's the way to my heart. And, um, and I'm like, oh my God, it's that Latvian guy. He's outside again. And they're like, but he brought you food. And I'm like, oh man, all right. So one day he didn't show up at the tent and I said, oh man, you know how that is, the chase. And I went to his tent looking for him, brought him tea and that was it. Ever since we, we were inseparable. Now, so. were there any regulations about, you know, fraternizing? Well, at the time, there was no time. Honestly, there was really no time to, to Fraternize. do anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'd go to the chaplain tent. We'd have tea. You know, uh, we'd watch, sometimes we'd watch movies together. And it was was never just me and him. It was always... I was the only girl on my team, so I was used to being around dudes all day. And then uh, in 2000, when I went in 2001, just real quick, when I went in 2001, I was guarding a skiff. So I was with all these army rangers. I don't know why they put me in there. I'm like 24-year-old young girl, and they're all in their skivvies running around doing their thing. And and before I knew it, I started looking at them like, oh, my God, they're like my brothers after about a month. And... Um, <laughs> And the first experience over there for me losing someone was was one of the guys and I was very close with him. Anyways, he left that night and came back in a bag. So these are the things and I know, listen, I'll tell you what, what I experienced over there is nothing what the Vietnam veterans, Korean veterans experience. Um, I'm sure a lot of the guys over in Afghanistan and Iraq experienced those things, but I found out it affects people in different ways. So what happened if I lost one or two buddies over there or I was RPG'd or something like that may affect me differently than someone who was just hearing the, um, you know, the mortars coming in. Everybody deals with PTSD on their own and they all have different levels of it. And I found out when I got back that it creeps up on you. It's not something that as soon as you get home, you're like, you're still with your buddies, you're still working in the military. So it doesn't creep up on you like it does as soon as you finally separate from the military. So what happens is we come home and I am a crazy woman, literally not myself. My friends say I'm not myself. My husband's, we have three little ones, a, th a three, five and seven year old. And um, I'm yelling at them all the time. I'm angry, um, just not myself. So Vitelli said, we have to do something because it's 
tearing the family apart. And um, he said, you loved boxing. When you were young, you told me you loved boxing. So he said, you need to do something. You need to get into boxing or do something to get this out. And um, I love, don't get me wrong, I've been through the VA and you guys that are working at the VA are doing, you know, the best that you can out there. There's something missing. There's, it's maybe the clinical setting or there was a time when I went and I told one of the doctors how I was feeling and we don't talk. It's very difficult to talk. Well, you guys, most of you guys probably know that. So when you do finally open up to someone, that person wrote down in a medical record, Troop is exaggerating experiences. Troop, uh, you know, sits facing the doors, over-exaggerated, things like that. When I saw that, I was livid. I said, who is this person to tell me what my experiences are and how I'm feeling? So I... I said to my husband, I can't continue going to the VA. And, and I, the VA is great for people that, that, that reach out and they, and they find that connection. But for me, I did not find that connection there. So I started boxing, started feeling better, started getting off all the meds. I was on heavy meds. I was on every kind of antidepressant that you can think of, probably more than, than you should be on at one time. And little at a time, I started healing. And I found that it was the outlet of boxing for me that was helping me. And it was the camaraderie of other people around me. So I was at the time, I just started a new job. I was making, they were offering me 24 an hour and they were really cool. Everyone was laid back, but who said when you get a job that you are, sorry, but civilians, they not as high speed, not as high speed as you are when you get out at all. So it's frustrating. And for me, it was like, these people are weird. Like they like relax. No one's yelling. There's no one being told what to do. No one's saying, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I'm like, this is just not, this is too weird. And I told V, something's going to implode here. I said, V, listen, I can't do this anymore. I can't work. (laughs) I can't work with civilians. I'm sorry. And he said, well, what can we do? And I said, let's build a boxing club. And he's like, are you sure this is what you want to do? I said, I think actually he was the one that said, why don't we start boxing? Maybe we can show other veterans how to do it. And I said, great, let's build a boxing club. So um, we had a little bit of savings, about 20, 20 grand, 30 grand in the bank. Um, and the rest was on credit cards. We found this old bar in, in Beaver County. Everyone thought we were totally nuts. Uh, laughing at us saying you uh, you guys are crazy and I knew I was already crazy everyone already thought I was crazy so uh, we opened up this boxing club and uh, put everything we had into it and it has become a safe haven I'm telling you for first responders and for veterans Um, we created the will the warrior program which is uh, we we say we, we say Tet and I'll tell you we have a little me and Jerry, we have a little connection with the Tet Offensive, but um, train, educate, and transition. So if a veteran or a first responder wants to come in, we train them for free. We start them on training right away. We introduce them to all the other veterans, all the other first responders that are there. I think right now we have about 23 that come come in and out of the, the boxing club, and it's 100% free. They come in and train. We spend time with them. We talk to them. We have a chaplain that's available 24-7 for them. We call them the, our, our path guidance officers. We have um, the Aru Initiative, which are two ex-Marines. 
trainings that are available. He just got his master's degree in psychology. So he's available because a lot of times these guys have, and gals have already been through the VA and they, they just, they just haven't found what they were looking for. So they come to us and there's that camaraderie there. And, um, we just had our first graduate this year from the, from the WOW program. He's a Manaka police officer, Patrick Young, and, um, and he's an ex army ranger. And he's gone through the program and we've certified him in uh, CPR, everything he needs to be certified in. And he's now a boxing instructor and he trains other veterans and helps them to heal. So um, last but not least, I'm sorry, I know it's 1030. It's probably way past that. But we are now in the process of remodeling our veterans and first responder center in Beaver County. It's in, located in Harmony Township. If you go to our Will of the Warrior, uh, Warriors Call Boxing Club page on Facebook or the Will of the Warrior, and we are a 501c3, totally legit, you'll see the progress that we're making. We have our junior ROTC guys from Ambridge High School that are 100% involved in it. We have all our firefighters, our local police officers that love the program. We're going to be doing a lot of things down the road with um, boxing matches for veterans and first responders. So um, look for us come probably the end of... Maybe the beginning of fall, middle of fall, we're going to be opening that up. And um, you guys are all going to be invited to come down and see the new Veterans Center. And basically, it'll be part training center for them and part rest and recreation center. And if anybody wants to talk to you more about this, you, you'll be able to stick around for just a yeah, few minutes. Yeah, sure. And do you Absolutely. have any cards or I literature? I do. I have cards. Wonderful. I didn't bring any literature, but I'm going to be talking at the um, the, the breakfast at, at in Beaver yes, at Seven right, Oaks. Right, so, Seven Oaks, um, yeah. April 6th. Thank you for having us. I'm sorry I ramble and I'm really quick. Wonderful, Brandy. This is terrific. Thank you. And thank you, Vitaly, very much. Would you like to lead us with God Bless America? Sure. Chuck Dodd, Army veteran, said he'll lead us with God Bless America to close us out here. God bless America. Land that I love, stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above. From the mountains to the prairie to the ocean, white with foam, God bless America, my home, sweet home. God bless America, my home, sweet home. Thank you, Chuck. That was wonderful. You've been listening to another live storytelling event by the Veterans Breakfast Club. For more information about the Veterans Breakfast Club, including a schedule of our events throughout Western Pennsylvania, visit us at veteransbreakfastclub.com. Thank you.